real, real conversation, conversation and some hard truths. Hard truths. Gangs, Gangs, drugs, drugs and, guns. and guns. Giving a voice to those willing to sacrifice. We have stories that need to be told. We have lessons that need to be taught. Protect and serve. Welcome to The Quiet Professional. Welcome back, everybody. Nathan Romas with you once again. And today, we have Corporal Stephen Ludlow on the show. Stephen's a 14-year member of the RCMP. He began his work in southern Alberta, where he worked in patrol, general investigations, and then moved to Grand Prairie, where he was a series crime investigator. This meant he focused on interpersonal crimes, including child exploitation, homicide, missing persons, and sex crimes. He's currently a Senior Victim Identification Specialist with the RCMP's National Victim Identification Unit at the National Child Exploitation Crime Center in Ottawa. It's a super long title. And he leads a team which identifies child victims depicted in child sexual abuse material. They also support other Canadian child exploitation investigators in furthering their own investigations. He has experience in forensic interviewing of child sexual offenders and investigative techniques in these types of files. And Stephen sits on several international task force working uh, and working groups led by Interpol and Europol and has conducted some training with the FBI and Europol. So welcome, Stephen. Thanks, Nathan. Great to be with you. And uh, just so people know, I used to work with you back in Okotoks a long time ago. Yes, our uh, <laughs> paths crossed for a brief period there. Uh, we shared our first posting uh, for a period. So, yeah, nice to reconnect with you today. And uh, I'll try to keep those acronyms for those long titles that you just went through uh, to a minimum. But uh, forgive me if I revert back to those. Yeah, well, I was kind of forming the bio from what you'd sent me. And um, I put this in here and I think I read it out three times out loud before I <laughs> we started recording and I'm like, I can never, it's like a huge tongue twister. So, <laughs> but uh, no, thank you for coming on. Um, we're a couple time zones apart, but uh, we always make this work and appreciate the time. So can you kind of start us at the beginning uh, as we do with most people the first time they're on and uh, tell us a bit about where you came from and uh, how you got to where you are today? Sure. Um, so originally I'm from a small town in Cape Breton, Nova Scotia. Um, grew up there, moved on to Halifax. And prior to my uh, policing uh, career, I worked in nursing for uh, a number of years in Halifax. And um, really policing was always something that was just kind of present as an interest. But quite frankly, back in, in that period, as a, a you know, being gay, I thought, oh, that's not really a career that's going to be for me. Uh, had all the stereotypes about what policing would be, be about. But, you know, lo and behold, sat down at a pride parade one year and saw a troop of, of Mounties marching in the parade. And I thought, oh, maybe I've been wrong about this whole idea of uh, becoming a police officer. And within probably a year or two years of that point, I went through uh, the recruiting process and, um, yeah, was successful and got in and got to my first post in uh, in 2009 uh, in Okotoks, where uh, where we began. So, in terms of kind of that first initial policing experience, I mean, working general duty and 
kind of getting exposure to a bit of everything. I worked a couple of files that were, you know, related to child exploitation. Uh, but it wasn't until I got, you know, uh, several years experience and moved on to, to Grand Prairie working in serious crimes that um, it really opened my eyes to the extent to which this, be, you know, this was a, a crime type that was number one of, of interest because it's a, you know, it's a complex crime type that involves, you know, offenders and victims and whatnot, but really takes a specialized set of skills and training to really advance those investigations. So, yeah, in Grand Prairie, ultimately, uh, throughout my experience with persons crimes, uh, I ended up working a project with uh, the Northern Alberta ICE unit where I was running the child exploitation investigations for, uh, for Grand Prairie. And it was really during that time that I seen kind of it opened my eyes to the just the sheer number of these cases that are taking place and really getting an understanding for, you know, that it's really a, a daunting task when you have just the pure volume of cases coming in. And, and for context, the cases that, that get reported to, to police in Canada, the vast majority of those come from the uh, National Center for, for Missing and Exploited Children in the U.S. And that's where kind of the big electronic service providers, the Facebooks and the YouTubes and whatnot, you know, all, all those reports regarding child exploitation get reported to them and ultimately come to Canada and then get referred out to the various jurisdictions. So, so looking after, uh, looking after those files in the Grand Prairie jurisdiction for that period of time, uh, was really my, my introduction to the, to the area of child exploitation in general and just all of the, the sub specialties that are involved to, to move those investigations forward. So, uh, maybe to go back a little bit. Um, even back to like nursing, did you have any exposure to these types of, I'll call it these types of investigations at that time? Because depending where you work, maybe you come across some of these victims? Uh, not specifically in the work that I was involved in, but, you know, fast forwarding to my work now, I, I do credit that experience with me being able to uh, work in this crime type because it's, it's not for everyone. Um, you know, between my nursing experience and my serious crimes experience, uh, really being able to look at these cases in somewhat of a clinical way when looking at the evidence, but at the same time, of course, recognizing that we're, we're dealing with, with people here and, and the importance of, uh, working on behalf of, uh, of victims. Mm -hmm. Because really where, I, you know, the unit that I'm in now, which is the victim identification unit, we're just one of the many specialized areas in the overall umbrella of child exploitation investigations. And, and really our place in the equation is to take a victim-centric approach to the investigations because, you know, at the end of the day, we have offenders located in, you know, most jurisdictions and, and the resources that are available to go into investigating those offenders, you know, there's never enough resources. And then you throw in there that people can be in possession of child exploitation material containing hundreds, if not thousands of different victims. And at the end of the day, I mean, everyone would agree, I think that it's the, the well-being of those victims that are being depicted in those images that's important. So we were that piece of this, where we look at this from a victim-centric perspective, and how can we find the victims that are being um, shown in those videos, in those images, who are being abused, and how can we safeguard them from, from future abuse? So that's kind of where we sit in that equation. 
can you kind of tell us a bit about what got you really started in this field? So, uh, and I asked that because I read an article here that the RCMP had done on you. They had a few questions and you said that one of the examples or one of the examples that you'd given, you had a victim that you had dealt with and you just remember kind of the look in their eyes and uh, the feeling of helping them kind of escape their world that they were in at the time. Uh, yeah, that's uh, that's uh, an example of a case actually that still uh, sits with me today, and and really that was in Grand Prairie actually. And uh, my colleague at the time, Constable Jenna Bootler, and I were were working on a case where some vulnerable youth, some homeless youth, were reporting to police in bits and pieces that there was an older man who was approaching them and approaching other at-risk youth and essentially exploiting them for sex acts and was grooming them for various things, you know, giving them alcohol, bringing them for drives in a nice car, etc. And ultimately he would take them to secluded areas where they would be sexually victimized. We had very little information to go on about the offender and the witnesses and those that were coming forward were were not overly cooperative. They were giving us bits and pieces. And essentially, we had to sit down and really analyze the, the behavior patterns of this suspect and try to determine what was going to happen next and where could we potentially find him at any given point. So we essentially took this information and come up with a plan to start uh, checking some areas where, where he may be present. And essentially... Um, we showed up one morning and decided to hit the first place we could find. It was a secluded rural location. And lo and behold, we approached this location, the very first one we chose, and we seen this older gentleman and a younger boy sitting near a river next to a nice car. And we thought, there's no way we just stumbled across this guy on our first attempt. And so we, we kind of monitored and we, we checked this out and, Sure enough, they get up and they get into the car and they drive off. And of course, we're, we're out in the middle of nowhere at this point. And we thought, okay, we got to keep an eye here. And then very quickly after that, they, they pulled over and the man and the boy walked into the woods. And this was consistent with the information we had received from, from many of the, the witnesses that had come, had come forward. So at that point, we you know we called for resources to come, but knowing what was potentially about to happen, we we had to enter the, the woods behind them. We were probably a minute behind, and sure enough, we we located them essentially as sexual offense was was unfolding, and we arrested the the man, escorted him and the boy out of the woods, and there was two things that came from from that boy that day, and that was. First of all, the complete look of disbelief he had in what he was experiencing in that moment. And then secondly, it was the gratitude that you could just see in his eyes. Mm -hmm. And he was so thankful that somebody showed up to essentially rescue him from that situation. And we know as child exploitation investigators that there's children in Canada every night going to bed hoping and praying that someone's going to come and rescue them from the situation that they find themselves in. So that's always stuck with me because that in-person, we're dealing with online crimes a lot of the time, but that in-person experience of seeing the impact that we can have on a single child who is at risk 
really motivated me then and, and still motivates me to to work on behalf of victims. So that one, yeah, that one sticks with me a lot, uh, even to this day. So I just think of, um, you know, this isn't like a field that really comes up, even in the policing world. You don't see these type of crimes quite often. Uh, I've maybe come across two of these types of crimes that I'm aware of within the last 10 years. Uh, when, when you had this file, how did you know to go to this area or, or even like reach out to somebody and say like, Hey, you know, uh, how do I get in here? And, and what, what type of field is this? Cause I want to say a lot of people are like, uh, I don't know if I could work in that area, uh, just because of the type of victims you deal with. It's a very hard field to be in and it's very hard, uh, things to see. So what kind of, um, led you in that, in that path and how did you figure out to, you know, that you want to be in there? Yeah, for me, in, in this example, there was not an online component. It was uh, an in-person situation, uh, but it certainly kind of demonstrated the importance that, you know, our work can have on those individual victims because, you know, uh, clearly, you know, young people, children are some of our most vulnerable um, segments of our population. And between that experience and then really helping with just that's really where it started was just helping with child exploitation investigations that were being led out of the Northern Alberta ICE unit and then taking on those investigations for Grand Prairie. It was kind of an, uh, an easing into the crime type, I guess you could say. And it really, a lot of the components were are in those investigations are complemented by the experience I had already gained in, in various persons crimes. Um, because generally speaking, when we when we look at the kind of the umbrella of child exploitation, you know, it, it's describing the the sexual abuse of children, where it's the recordings of that abuse, the images and the videos that are then distributed online and shared amongst offenders. That is the kind of the, the core piece of of this. And and you're right. I think it's an area that until you're exposed to it or you have a, an understanding of really the, the magnitude of, of uh, these crimes, a lot of people do wonder. And, and really, it's about really that exposure, I think, uh, to this crime type. I don't know if um, people realize, I mean, even here in Canada, we have, I think now in excess of 55 child exploitation units across Canada. And that's, you know, between RCMP, provincial and municipal policing agencies. There's 55 units and, um, you know, there's complexities around this crime type um, that really make it important that those ICE units are supported by specialized units, whether it's uh, a unit like mine or whether it's, you know, covert operations and uh, technical operations and things like that. So, um, yeah, it's really about that exposure. And I think generally, yeah, unless you are exposed to it or you have knowledge around what it all consists of, not necessarily something um, or an area that people would choose without really having that background information. Well, and just the complexity of it. Um, I know dealing with online stuff, if even just dealing with basic frauds, it's a giant nightmare <laughs> to do anything online. Yeah. But yeah. how many, could you kind of ballpark what it would take for one of these investigations uh, when you talk maybe uh, personnel-wise, how many people might be involved in in one investigation or how many units or even services? Yeah. I mean, there's, there's certainly a wide range of 
the types of cases that kind of fall within the child exploitation uh, umbrella. And those could range from, for example, a child being groomed online to provide images of themselves for taking in sexual activity, uh, where it's a relatively simple scenario in the sense that you have one offender, one victim, and the goal is to determine who both of those people are to ensure that that is not continuing and also hopefully uh, hold that person accountable. But on the other spectrum, we have, um, like most organized crime, um, there are networks online, uh, including on the, on the dark web, of which I'm not a specialist in that particular area. But these, these organized crime groups, uh, like many others, work on a hierarchy. And, um, you know, for them, new material, new child exploitation material is like currency. They're looking to to um, uh, increase their status within these groups and take on new roles within the groups. And the scary part of that is that in order to obtain new material, you need new victims. So by by being aware and knowing what these offenders are looking for, that is one of the challenges because we have to adapt to that if we want to protect victims that are currently being victimized and hopefully prevent um, the magnitude of the, the additional victims that may be at risk. And, and those, I mean, that's just one kind of piece of the complexity. And in those situations where you have, you have, um, you know, you have encryption to deal with, you have, you know, just the anonymity in general, you have these offenders who are planning and, and, and figuring out ways to, to not be detected by law enforcement. So, in those situations, you're going to have, um, you know, your ICE units, you're going to have your victim identification, you're going to have your covert operations, you're going to have your forensic technology units. And then depending on where these offenders are located, uh, you're going to have transnational sex offender units and you're working with, you know, border services and, and partners in, in other countries. And really, when it comes to this crime type in general and specifically with victim identification, it's those partnerships with colleagues around the world that really help to um, bring these, these investigations together so that we can identify those victims. I use the analogy that it's really, you know, imagine somebody just passing you a photo of anything and saying, okay, you, you need to find out where in the world that photo was taken mm-hmm. and really having nothing else to go on. So, for us, we, this could be an image of a child being sexually abused, and we see that the crime has occurred, and our fear is always that it's new and that the child has not been previously identified. Where do you start? And for us, it's really starting with that global collaboration and working with our partners to, number one, figure out where in the world, this, you know, what region, which country this could be happening in. And then once we determine which country it's happening in, Okay, which province? Now, which city? Which town? Which location? And really working to find that specific location because once we find the location, we have a much better chance of finding that specific victim and making sure that they are they're safeguarded. Um, one thing I want to go back to: you're saying there's like a uh, like a almost a hierarchy in within these networks. So, do they operate? maybe similar to like an organized crime ring and are they kind of 
do you attack them in that sense? Uh, like, do you go after the kind of the head of the snake or do you always have to kind of work from the bottom up? No, generally speaking, it's very similar to what you're, you're describing there. Now, my unit specifically, we don't uh, we don't lead that part of it because our our interest again coming from the victim centric approach is finding where the victims that are being depicted in the images being shared by those networks mm-hmm. may be located, mm-hmm. and if that and if that then contributes to you know finding out where that material is being produced, and if that producer is part of a network, great. Um, but but you're absolutely right. These these are not unlike other organized crime networks where where there's motivations, uh, you know, beyond just victimizing the child. There's then status and whatnot. And um, you know, and and now with with the ability of the internet to allow offenders to obtain child exploitation material from children without ever having to be in their physical presence just highlights the you know the the magnitude and the volume of this material that can be be produced and that's when it comes down to one of our biggest hurdles really as law enforcement is this material will be distributed to people in countries all around the world and you know the difficult part is we could have images of a child being abused here in Canada and those images Will show up in seizures and in investigations in a dozen other countries, and we don't want investigators in those countries to have to, you know, start and initiate investigations to try to find that child. When hey, we've already found that child here in Canada, and vice versa. We don't want to put effort into, you know, trying to find a child who's already been identified in another country. Mm-hmm. So that that collaboration, that deconfliction is so important in victim identification just because of the sheer volume of victims that we're dealing with. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a big struggle in that, in that way. When these investigations are ongoing, are you like, a, you're on the victim side of things, but are you, uh, are you still, a, uh, informed as to, you know, who actually gets arrested in the end or what charges come out of it? Or do you just kind of, you do, you know, you're one part of the 10 things that are involved in this. And then you're on to the next. Yeah, uh, for the most part, yes, we're we're completing the tasks that we need to, and from the victim identification perspective. However, uh, that that collaboration that I speak of in terms of I know being able to come together on for deconfliction and to share investigational skills with with other countries. Really, the the focal point for that is through uh, Interpol's child sexual exploitation database. And that's really an investigational tool that allows, I think there's over 65 countries now who are connected to this this uh, platform. And that's where we get to um, collaborate and deconflict and work together to determine where these children are located and ultimately locate them, um, uh, safeguard them. So for example, um, we could have images you know, that we're trying to determine where that child would be. We may have a little bit of information pertaining, you know, what we can figure out regarding those images. And then an investigator in Germany might have something else to add, an investigator in Australia or the U.S., uh, the U.K. And it's that piling on of skill sets and techniques that, that, you know, when you layer it all together, finally allows you to figure out where that, where that victim is located. 
then it's up to the local jurisdiction to push that investigation forward to find the victim, of course, but also to see if there's any chance of locating the offender as well. And in those cases, we do get uh, the information back um, through this uh, platform about, you know, the general resolution, you know, was the victim finally found? You know, was there an offender located and identified? And what is the extent of their, their, um, their crimes, really? So, and I know we're talking mostly about uh, the victim side of things. So maybe these couple questions I have here will be real quick. Because uh, maybe you don't even have an answer, but sure. um, just talking about the the perpetrators, the accused, and where um, what do you see any kind of themes or commonalities among the people that are involved in this? Like, could it be is is there a frequent type of employment they have? A frequent type of social status? Is it uh, uh, location based? Yeah, that's, uh, there's no general, I think, um, profile per se that, uh, that we'd be approaching it from in terms of, uh, you know, who's, who's victimizing which children. We do know that, you know, the, the pandemic certainly um, emphasized the need and the, uh, for resources in this, in this area because with so many children at home during the pandemic and offenders as well, it, we're seeing kind of the aftermath of that now where people who are at home with the time and the, the access to the internet uh, and for the children unsupervised time that people did have uh, more ability to target children. But in terms of any particular, yeah, social status, et cetera, you know, just anecdotally, I have not seen any um, particular um, profile stand out but I'm sure there's there's probably research uh, that would perhaps outline that a little bit better than uh, than I could speak to today. Do do you see big? Uh, are they generally big org crime network type files, or do you get more of the you know this one person or a couple people are doing it, and you just have like a bunch of little cells of it? Because I'm thinking, you know, uh, Epstein Island, and lots of people know that because there's a million documentaries on it and stuff but like i don't imagine that's an everyday thing not lots of people have islands but it's just i don't think that's like a a real easy undertaking um to yeah. kind of set it, up it it really um spans the full gamut of scenarios unfortunately and these are not uh kind of to your point these are not the everyday you know files that we would be seeing in terms of that level of organization uh, although that exists and there's, there's units that are, that specifically target, uh, those networks, uh, in hopes of essentially shutting down those networks. Um, and then it's, it's what comes from those networks, the, 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 the media, for example, that comes from that, that then leads us to start digging into, well, who, who have been the victims of these offenders and how are we going to determine where those victims are? And a lot of times it's the, it's the outcomes of the victim identification portion that can then support, you know, prosecutions down the road when, you know, someone who has been, you know, an offender who has been identified and charged, for example, if, if that investigating agency can confirm that, you know, they have either victimized or shared material associated to X number of victims. And those victims could be anywhere in the world. And, 
And if we're, the, if we're assisting an investigation by identifying children either in Canada or abroad, then that can help uh, support that investigation overall. But uh, yeah, it, it definitely runs the full gamut from, you know, single individuals who are targeting children online uh, to single individuals who are targeting them in person and recording the abuse um, to these more organized networks who are targeting uh, in a vast array of, of ways. Yeah, well, and I'm just thinking of like how you're explaining the investigation and you're looking at more from the victim side and you can use the victim uh, as the path to finding the 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 perpetrator right Mm -hmm. and that's not really a common way of thinking about things i just think like you know you deal with a a theft well you're looking at the suspect's clothing and you're trying to find where they went or or something it's it's always focused on the bad guy but um using the victim to as like a, a different means to the end uh yeah it's a different way of thinking maybe it would help in a lot of other investigations well, in this, in these cases, the, the, that's really the difference, and you, you've touched on it there. In that, you know, when we're when we're often just starting with, let's say, an image or a video, um, what we're starting with is the evidence. We can see the crime unfolding. A lot of crime types, you're starting perhaps at the crime scene, mm-hmm. and the investigation stems from there, and it works out, and you start gathering evidence from that point. In, in our work in victim identification, we're starting with the evidence and we're essentially working backwards to try to find where that crime scene is. And it's finding that crime scene that can, in, in most cases, we, we, our goal is to find the crime scene so that we can then find the child who was at that scene. So it's essentially working backwards from the evidence back to the crime scene versus some crime types where you're starting with the crime scene and working outwards. So in talking about the victims, uh, do you see any kind of general themes among the victims? So any characteristics, maybe um, social status, uh, maybe they have certain type of employment. So where where do we find the victims and what's kind of the common theme with them? Yeah, again, there's a full range there and it's really... You know, like like any group, when we're talking about uh, any vulnerable population, the more vulnerable they are, the more at risk they are. So, in our case, you know, when we're when we're prioritizing and doing risk assessments, essentially, the younger the child, the higher the risk. So, if we have toddlers, babies um, who are being sexually abused, who can't speak for themselves, mm-hmm. obviously, that would be a higher priority to. Um, locate those victims versus um, not that it's any less serious, but um, if there's uh, crimes being committed against, and you know, let's say teenagers are sharing material with other on, other people online, still not good. But you know, our focus in in that would be to look for the most vulnerable victim um, who who can't speak for themselves. Uh, and generally, I think the uh, the takeaway in terms of any um, particular age group or involvement that children have, I mean, it's generally speaking, the younger children who are being targeted online are typically going to be using um, like a tablet, for example, using apps that most people would think are safe, like thinking like YouTube and TikTok and things like that. 
um, those are typically going to be younger children who are involved in uh, in being targeted in that, in, on those platforms versus as you get older, when children start being old enough to use a cell phone, for example, the the apps and the and whatnot that are going to be involved are going to be those that are focused on communication. Mm-hmm. And today, so much communication is encrypted, for example, that it leads few avenues sometimes for investigation when they are being targeted. Because often, you know, this is the reality today is that these um, children of any age really can be targeted and they think they're talking to someone perhaps that is of a similar age um, because offenders will portray themselves as a teenager or as a child with similar interests to gain that trust and, and groom them uh, and eventually try to obtain you know explicit material from them for their, their own purposes. And that brings us into a whole kind of other area that is just really taking off as of late and we're seeing it and that's the area of sextortion where children are being targeted online and they gain some trust with this person that they think they now know and then they get extorted Mm -hmm. for more images and more images and more images and the child you know is potentially afraid to disclose anything thinking they're going to be in trouble and we're really seeing that take off um you know especially uh from the pandemic onwards now, we're really seeing how that's uh, taken taken off more than what we've seen in, in previous years. So that's, uh, I wouldn't call it emerging because it's been around for a while, but it's certainly uh, playing a bigger part in, in a lot of the cases that we see coming forward. Well, and he, I'm just thinking at the ground level of things, we would see that, uh, like say you're in patrol, that comes up a lot in high school. Mm-hmm. Somebody sends uh, a naked picture and now they're, you know, it's, I'm going to send this to everybody if you don't do this for me. So yeah, that's, that's about the extent I've ever seen it. But um, how, when you do these investigations, if somebody's getting extorted with that, is there a way to make sure those pictures don't get out? Or can you pull them back off of the internet? Or is it, it's once it's out there, kind of like everyone says, once it's out there, it's out there. Yeah, I think generally speaking, that that is the reality. That once it's out there, you know, there's no way to know for certain um, that it's only been shared the once, for example. Uh, but we do have there are uh, we have partners here in Canada. Um, one of the resources available to you know people in Canada is the CyberTip.ca, and CyberTip has initiatives where they have the ability to go and essentially. Um, I'll call it scan uh, the internet for particular images that have been reported and then send notices to those websites to uh, say, listen, that image that you have is considered child exploitation and, and ask that it be removed. So there are mechanisms out there and we, we partner with, uh, with these agencies from a law enforcement perspective where appropriate to, to support that. So there are some ways uh, to help mitigate, and like many things, the earlier the better. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, it, it really, you know, generally that is the the overall concern is that once it is shared, you don't know where it's going from there. And it's really that uh, you know that sharing amongst peers, which on a risk perspective may be lower risk, but until it gets distributed further, and then it ends up in the wrong hands, unfortunately. You know, we, we also see that, it, you know, in that range of what would be 
initially seen as innocent images um, per se. Um, that also carries over to social media where we have offenders who will go online to someone's Facebook page who, you know, maybe the, the Facebook um, user has posted some innocent images of their children and offenders will capture those images and they'll use technology. They'll use software to, you know, take the face of that child and put it on child abuse material mm. and make new material out of it. And then now we have that face on, uh, on a new body and have abuse taking place when it's never actually that child who's physically abused, mm -hmm. but now there are images out there. So there's so many situations where it, it, you know, innocent situations where offenders will look for opportunities to exploit really where you're least expecting it. Wow. I never even knew that was a thing. It's kind of uh, what do they call it? A, a deep fake where you put someone else's face into a video. Yeah. And deep fakes is another area that is taking off. So, you know, whether it's, using, you know, Photoshop to simply kind of cut and paste a face from one photo to another to make new material or whether it's, uh, yeah, getting into the deep fakes. That's uh, another area that's, that's, of course, taking off because really uh, in this crime type, nothing is off limits, unfortunately. So do you find a lot of the stuff is shared on social media, like this Facebook, uh, Instagram, like all these people can actually just go on there and file uh, find child pornography oh. images or videos? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Mm. It's, uh, if I look at, I pulled a few numbers here, um, actually for today. And if we look at 2021, 2022, like that fiscal year, um, our national, um, our national center received over 81,000 complaints during that first, during that one year period. And these are all, the majority of these are all social media platforms. So Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, Google, all the main ones. And uh, that's actually a 56% increase to the year prior. So those 80, 80 plus thousand reports that are received in a year, those are just social media. That's just one component under this child exploitation umbrella that we're dealing with. So that, and that's just Canada. That's that's eighty one thousand reports from service providers in the U.S. because that's coming from the U.S. And then, of course, you have Canadian. There are some smaller Canadian companies who are also reporting uh, as well. So, you know, just spitballing here, but probably you know roughly a hundred thousand reports per year just from social media platforms for Canada. So again, that the sheer number. And that we're dealing with is just, you know, it, it's daunting. That's crazy to, yeah, to fathom that the number is so high. And I was reading um, an article uh, just because I know pornography websites have come up in these discussions of, I mean, that would be the first place I would think some of this stuff would get shared. And there, there was one here about Pornhub. They were running a chat bot to, I guess, if somebody types in a certain word, uh, it would pop up this chat bot and it basically uh, it would kind of direct these people saying like, hey, you're looking up stuff that's not allowed. Um, here's some helplines. Here's online support. Uh, so I thought, oh, that's kind of an interesting idea. I mean, if, if police can't get to every single thing, 
do we have other partners out there that are working on you know protecting some of these people so are you aware of like a lot of these other programs and and yeah are they helpful at all yeah so i mean generally speaking we do have mandatory reporting laws in canada so regardless of what type of site uh, a company may be running what type of app etc if they're aware that that material exists uh, it does need to be reported um surprisingly it's not pornography sites that are a big problem in this particular crime type in terms of the frequency of this occurring. And actually, it, it brings me to the point that you'll notice uh, today I, I have not used the term child pornography uh, yet, mm-hmm. um, despite the fact that our criminal code, you know, the offenses surrounding child exploitation are child pornography when it comes to producing, distributing, and possessing it. Um, but in this crime type and working with our colleagues, we do use the term child sexual abuse material, child sexual exploitation material, and we internationally, it's not accepted to even use the word pornography when you're talking about child exploitation. Mm-hmm. So pornography is a term that's used to describe adults engaging in generally, typically consensual sexual acts, and it's typically of a legal nature. Okay. But children, but children, whose abuse has been recorded, they need our protection and respect, and therefore their abuse shouldn't be reduced to the word porn or, or such terms. And really, mm. if we ever hear, and my, my message today to anyone listening would be, if you ever hear the word child porn or kitty porn, uh, we really should be cringing at the fact that we're using the term pornography when we're talking about the abuse and the recording of sexual abuse of children. So mm-hmm. just a little little piece there on that um but yeah definitely when it comes to the mandatory reporting it's i mean that is beneficial uh, across the board regardless of what type of um site is being run um and we do get some reports from there but yeah interestingly enough it's not um adult pornography websites that we see a lot uh coming from okay and uh yeah i was just looking at some of the stats that are um, listed out there. These are just generalized stats, but I imagine you might have some better ones. Mm-hmm. Uh, how many investigations do you uh, become involved with in a year? Oh, I, you know, for the exact number of investigations, I wouldn't have offhand. It's definitely in the in the hundreds, but mm-hmm. I will. You know, what I do have um, generally. I, I spoke earlier about the. Um, Interpol's, our collaboration tool with Interpol. Mm -hmm. And those are 65 plus countries who collaborate to identify victims. And since its inception, which I believe was around 2015, there's been over 30,000 victims identified globally. And that's an average of seven victims a day, I think is, is the current number. Um, But here in Canada, um, for example, last year in 2021, uh, investigators in Canada identified 330 victims. And as and I did a check here, so leading up to just last month, October of this year, we're at 380 Canadian victims identified. So we're we're above last year's numbers, and unfortunately, uh, this will be probably a record a year for the number of victims uh, identified. Now, there's various factors at play there. We know we are seeing generally, and the numbers will will paint a 
better picture, I think, in, the, in time to come on what effect the pandemic has had on the number of victims in, in Canada. But also, um, you know, we're getting better at resourcing these files, uh, increasing resources with victim identification. So I think there's a few factors there that can lead to that higher number. But uh, yeah, so far this year for 2022, we're at 380 victims that have been identified. And we know that that's a drop in the bucket compared to the, the full volume of, mm-hmm. of cases that are out there. But that's really um, uh, it's demonstrating that the, the scope of, of what we're dealing with. So we're, we're over one a day just here in Canada. Well, and, and just the sheer number of pictures you're talking about, we're tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of uh, pictures, and then there's probably that many victims. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you... And there's just always like a wave of new stuff coming in. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you work at all on historical stuff, or is it just if a a picture kind of comes up and somehow gets matched, then you look to the past, or do you have a historical unit that works on this stuff? Yeah, the priority will always be, as as mentioned earlier, offenders are looking for new material, so new material will naturally put at risk new victims. So that will take priority. But unfortunately, we do see offenders who have, you know, been offending over long periods of time where uh, sometimes we'll identify victims in images. And by the time that that identification is made, they're now adults and had no idea that their material was ever even distributed. Wow. So not a not a call that someone likes to receive or a visit saying, hey, is this you? Mm-hmm. Um, because this material has been around. Now, that's not as common as, um, you know, the new material that's coming in, but it does happen because often because you're dealing with um, digital media, um, you don't necessarily know when that those images were taken. So we do end up uh, investigating some historical cases that by the time you actually identify the person, you had no idea it was actually historical, but valuable nonetheless, because this may lead to an offender who is still offending mm-hmm. um, and it can help bring some closure perhaps to an individual who, you know, knows that they were, let's say, sexually abused, um, but didn't realize the scope of perhaps that offender's um, offending. So, yeah, so the historical part uh, does play play a role, uh, but in terms of active uh, investigations, the newer material will take precedence because those are likely the ones where children are potentially still at risk. So those will always kind of go to the top of the pile when we know um, that that's the case. We don't often know that uh, at the beginning. Have you ever met one of these victims after you've helped in an investigation? You know, it, seeing as we're, we're, doing, we're dealing with online crimes and the victims end up in being the final identification taking place at the local level, we don't often find ourselves in that, in that position. The, the ICE units across Canada play a critical role in, in taking that kind of final step to, you know, make that approach on a victim and, and or approach the parents and make that final confirmation um, based on the information that we've provided perhaps in, in a case to make that happen. So in those cases, it's really the local ICE units who have that, uh, um, that one-on-one uh, communication and, and meeting with either the victim or their their parents or guardians, um, and then again because there's such a range of uh, uh, types of offending, whether it's you know simply 
sharing amongst peers or sharing with an unknown online contact versus someone who has experienced ongoing sexual abuse that's been recorded and then distributed or, you know, um, that they've been abused and then that material shared within some of these bigger networks. There's a whole range of situations there that, um, you know, may require various types of follow-up with, with the victims and their families to make sure that they are indeed safeguarded from, from any future abuse. Yeah, I don't, I, I don't know what it would be like to meet, you know, somebody that's a victim of this type of crime and, you know, you're such a integral part of it. And then, especially if you've been the one who has to review images or videos, um, mm-hmm. I wouldn't know what to really think. I, yeah, it's not, I mean, even going back to that earlier file that I described about having to follow the the offender and the victim into the woods and Again, I can only imagine for those that are doing that on a daily basis, um, you know, it, it, it does add a whole other layer to, to the crime type. And unfortunately, you know, we do find ourselves in a position where, you know, you, you identify a child and, you know, then you're moving on to the next and the next. And, you know, there's, it's daunting, but uh, the work needs to be done. And, and thankfully, we have investigators across the country who are, are so dedicated uh, in this field that uh, that we do get to, to identify these victims and, and collaborate and and hopefully make a difference to to those individuals. Mm-hmm. Well, and I guess this kind of leads into uh, the discussion of what type of mental health, uh, we'll say, safeguards or or maybe things that they, you get sent for. Uh, do you guys have like a, a a regular routine that you have to go? see anybody or talk to anybody because I know even some of the units here uh, in the Edmonton Police Service, they get sent for regular checkups, I'll call them. I don't know the proper terms, but yeah. um, you know, is there, what do you do to kind of maybe take care of yourself? Yeah, that, and that's definitely uh, part of the equation in this crime type. Uh, it, it may vary between different services, but I know for us, we you know we are required to even before you enter this crime type, you you have a psychological assessment, and things like um, you know resiliency is really important and 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 self care. And then once you're for for us, we we are required to get an annual. Uh, we do an annual check-in, kind of an assessment uh, with uh, psychological services just to see how everyone's doing and how everybody's coping and, and what those wellness, uh, what wellness things are in place to, to help mitigate the effects of, uh, you know, viewing this, this material. Um, and also here at, uh, at the NCECC, our national center here, we have a, a research group and a, um, a health and wellness group who are regular, regularly um, bringing in guest speakers and uh, initiating um, wellness sessions and different activities to really uh, help people find the tools that that'll work for them in terms of their their own well-being. Everyone's different in terms of what works for them and what uh, what will help mitigate uh, the effects. So uh, there's lots kind of going on at any given time to for people to find the resources and the, and the tools that'll work for them. Uh, but it's definitely it definitely plays a a big piece in uh, in this crime type for sure. Does does your unit have a tenure? Yeah, so there's no specific tenure in place. Um, I think most people, because we have that ability to meet with um, health services and and have those tools available, it is a situation where 
if you're done, if you recognize that uh, you've had uh, you know, your time is, is finished in this crime type, um, it's not it, the process of moving on is made quite easy uh, to help the person transition to uh, a new crime type, a new unit, etc. So that takes the a bit of the burden off of investigators wondering, you know, what you know what will happen if I leave or or whatnot, because there's just as many um, risks to staying perhaps longer than you should. Um, there's just as many risks with leaving too soon, uh, in my eye, because people are people who get into this crime type. They're generally in it because not because it's just another job. This is not the crime type that you take. You know, I just want another position. Mm-hmm. I'm looking for a change. You, you you do it because you're you're looking to make a difference. Uh, you get you know you're committed to to the crime type, um, hoping to make a difference. Uh, so leaving too early sometimes can be uh, um, just as bad as staying too long, I guess you could say. So every, everyone's different. So uh, and we're just kind of coming up to the end of our time here, but um, yeah. where, where do you think you might go from here? Because you said there's a whole bunch of subsets in this field, but are you looking to stay in this area or do something totally different? Yeah, it really depends. Um, you know, this this crime type, just like many other kind of serious crimes type um, fields, whether it's missing persons or homicide and whatnot, uh, one often complements the other in terms of the skill sets that you obtain. So uh, I don't know exactly what will come next, but uh, yeah, certainly still, still uh, getting a lot of job satisfaction out of this particular unit and, uh, and hoping to continue to make a difference in, in some capacity. Um, so yeah, right now we'll, uh, I'm staying put, but we'll see what the, yeah, what the future brings. All right. Well, is there anything, uh, you think we missed? I know we were talking a bit before, uh, we started the recording, but I think we even touched on that stuff. Um, is there anything we missed? No, I think, you know, the, I think the takeaway when we're talking about this crime type, because, you know, it's not a, it's not an easy uh, discussion to have, and, and we're certainly not in a position to talk about the, you know, we wouldn't want to talk about the graphic details of these cases kind of in a public forum or, or in the media. So I think just one of the things uh, I think to keep in mind as whether it's, whether it's you're a member of the public or media or police is that because the details often aren't described for, for obvious reasons, uh, we do have to be cautious that we don't oversimplify the crime type. I know there's, there's some thought that, you know, child exploitation, we're talking about, you know, naked kids in a bathtub or naked kids running on the beach. And really that's not the case. I mean, mm-hmm. we're talking about serious sexual crimes, you know, suffering by these children. And, you know, I think, you know, I can end uh, today just, just commenting on, uh, I'll just quote the, the United Nations Convention on the Rights of the Child, who say that children have the right to live in dignity, free of all forms of sexual exploitation. And with those rights comes obligations and responsibilities that we must all honor and respect. And this is not optional. Mm-hmm. That's good. Well, I think that's a great place to end. And uh, thank you for your time. And uh, if you can hang on the line, I'll say bye offline. Sure. Um, But yeah, thank you for coming. Thanks, Nathan.